Speaking of that word that God makes effective to salvation, please turn in your Bibles. Actually, we're going to go to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is one of the prophets. It's found there after the book of Psalms. Uh, after the book of Song of Solomon, you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel was a prophet in the, in, the, in the nation of Babylon, in the city of Babylon, that God called to speak to the people there in exile uh, to remind them of many things, to remind them of their failures, but also to remind them of uh, God's grace. And so today we are in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 16, and we will begin our reading in verse 49. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and, un and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. Samaria did not commit half the sins you did. You have done more detestable things than they, and they have made your sisters seem righteous by all these things you have done. Bear your disgrace, for you have furnished some justification for your sisters. Because your sins were more vile than theirs, they appeared more righteous than you. So then be ashamed and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. Let us pray. Lord, we ask today that you speak to us. We are going to attend to your word. We are going to seek to lay it up in our hearts but before that, we are going to approach your throne and ask you to give us your spirit to help us with that. Lord, as we look at this section of the book of Ezekiel, as we consider the sins of Sodom, we just ask that you shine your light into the darkness of our hearts. Expose the areas where we have failed you, even in these areas we talk about today, and help us to repent and turn to you. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week, as I was thinking about what to preach on today, uh, something I said last week just kind of stuck with me, and I realized I said something somewhat significant and just kind of breezed over it and moved along as we talked about the sins of Sodom. I looked at a passage in Isaiah, I looked at a passage in Jeremiah, and I looked briefly at this passage here. Um, describing what the sins of Sodom were beyond what we typically think the sins of Sodom to be. And I just thought, you know, maybe I ought to take one of those passages and, and maybe talk about it just a little bit um, so that we can begin to understand that there was just more than the sexual sins of Sodom. And the reason I want to do this is because we typically have an idea when we look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis, we have a tendency to point and say, Yes, and so God will judge you. Um, but I think it's important for us to look at the whole counsel of Scripture, first off, not just to, to, to uh, point our finger at sin specifically um, out of one section, but to look at the whole counsel of Scripture to make sure that as we're pointing that one finger um, out toward the world that we realize we've got those other three pointing back toward us. Um, and, and I kind of wanted to clarify something else I said from last week, and I hope to do so today, is that in some areas the church has been complicit in uh, the sins that led to the downfall of Sodom. So today we're going to look at this list of sins. We're going to look at how 
um, we may have been complicit in this, in these sins. And, and hopefully I, at the end of this, I, I, my intention is not to leave us you know, in, a, in a pool of, of blubbering shame for our sin, but to show us where the gospel speaks to us as well as it could have spoken to Sodom. So what were the sins of Sodom? Well, there's one that we touched on last week that I want to look at that's not included here in, the, in Ezekiel chapter 16. Just to remind us of the context, these two angelic messengers from God went into the city of Sodom. They met Lot there in the gate. Lot said, hey, come to my house. Um, stay with me. Let me feed you. Let me give you a place to sleep tonight. And I'll send you on your way well fed and well rested in the morning. And, and they did that. After, after discussing, arguing with Lot a little bit, um, they did. They went to his house. And remember, the men of Sodom came and said, hey, we understand there's two strangers in your house. Give them to us for our pleasure. And Lot said, no, do not do this detestable thing. Lot was reminding them of this rule of hospitality that existed in the ancient Near East, that existed even up until the time of Jesus and the apostles, um, really should exist even today. Um, but this idea that the stranger was welcome in the house, the stranger the alien, the person who was traveling from point A to point B and had to stay in a city overnight, needed certain things. They needed a place to stay. They needed food to eat. They needed safety. And Lot offered that to the two messengers. But the rest of the city of Sodom did not offer that to the two messengers. In fact, they wanted to violate very violently and very horrifically the laws of hospitality. And, and it took them acting in a supernatural way to keep the men of Sodom from acting in a, in a non-hospitable way. Hospitality is important to God as well throughout His law, throughout the first five books of the Bible, even into the qualifications for elders and deacons. Hospitality is an important thing. He tells them throughout the law, do not, do not harm the alien and the traveler. And he tells the leaders of the church through Paul to Timothy, he says, make sure you choose men who are hospitable and who reach out. I'm reminded of the story of um, Rosaria Butterfield in her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Many of you have heard me reference her before. She was an English professor at Syracuse University. She was in a lesbian relationship. She was an atheist, and she was getting ready to write a book on the horrors and the evils of evangelical Christianity. And as part of the introduction, as part of her research, she ran an, an editorial in the paper there. And you can imagine the response she got. She said all the letters she got, she put into two boxes. One was the box for the people who loved and affirmed her. The other was the box there by the side of her desk that has the plastic bag in it that all of us have for all the people that yelled and screamed at her. But she said she received one letter she couldn't put in either one, and it was from a pastor there in the area in which she lived that said, hey, I disagree with you, but I'd love to talk to you about it. Come have dinner with me and my wife. And over a period of a couple years, just inviting her to dinner, having her in her house, she showed up at church one day. She said they didn't have any agenda beyond feeding me a meal and being nice to me. And so hospitality is a gospel tool. You're afraid to share the gospel? I totally get that. I understand. 
Do you fix supper most nights of the week? Invite people to sit there at the table with you and just get to know them. Just get to be their friend. But then we have the list of sins that we have here for us in Ezekiel chapter 16. Uh, Ezekiel, God through Ezekiel says this. He gives these lists of sins. He says, you were arrogant, you were overfed and unconcerned, that you did not help the poor and needy, you were haughty and did detestable things before the Lord. I believe the root of our of the sin of Sodom is actually pride and arrogance. He lists that twice there. He says at the beginning of the list, he says you were proud. Um, and then later on there in the middle of the list, he said you were haughty. You know, whenever cities are formed and you you begin to pull together and to collect and to pool resources of people, whether it's resources of intelligence whether it's resources of food, whether it's resources of technology, um, cultures flourish. I mean, think about uh, the world since the the Industrial Revolution, the advent of things like factories. Think of Henry Ford. What did Henry Ford do? Henry Ford didn't invent the car. He just used the uh, assembly line to begin to put cars together. Cars before Henry Ford were, of course, very slow and very primitive, but they were also only uh, for the rich, the wealthy. Henry Ford opened up the the car to people, to people like you and I who can never be considered to be rich or wealthy. Um, He made it accessible. And so that's what happens when, when people get together and they pool their resources, as I said, whether economic or intellectual. But what's the tendency when that happens? We begin to toot our own horn and believe our own press. How wonderful was Henry Ford to to allow access to, 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 to cars for everybody? We have a tendency to look back and say, oh my goodness, look what, what we have done as Americans, as humans, as Europeans. Look what we have done to bring ourselves to this point of affluence and influence in the world. We don't need God. We did this ourselves. It's kind of like Jimmy Stewart in in the movie Shenandoah as he sits there with his sons around the dinner table and he prays. He's reminded by somebody at the table that he needs to pray. And so Jimmy Stewart gets up and he says, God, uh, I guess I'm supposed to pray to you for this meal. Um, Even though I'm the one who planted the seed, even though my boys were the ones who weeded the garden, even though I was the one who tended the cattle, even though we were the one who who did everything to prepare this, um, I guess, thank you. I mean, that's what the tendency we have, we happen to have as a culture. And, and Ezekiel says here that God condemned Sodom for that type of pride. It was this idea that we have made ourselves. We can, we can, we've done all this ourselves. We are self-sufficient. We don't need anybody but ourselves as humans. Um, and I think that's the root of all sin whether it's the sin that they, are, they ultimately commit, which we will touch on here in just a few minutes, whether it's the sin that you and I commit, it's this sense of, I don't need God to tell me what to do. I know what's best for my own life. Adam and Eve. Eve took and ate the fruit because Satan convinced her that God didn't really have her best interest at heart. That she knew what was best for her. And if she really wanted to have a true and flourishing life, as Ligon Duncan said, you must disobey God. That's what the Satan said. That's what the serpent said 
to Eve. And that's the root of all sin is pride. And, and God condemned them as much, if not more, for their pride and judged them as much, if not more, for their pride as He did for the other sins. Well, what's the next sin that He listed there? He said, you are overfed and unconcerned. These are words of, of wealth and injustice. In this culture, in our culture today, obesity seems to be the lot of the poor. But in the culture that Ezekiel and the culture that Abraham lived in, if you were overfed and fat, that was because you were rich and wealthy. Poor people starved to death. They didn't have McDonald's to go through. They didn't have the four for four dollars at Wendy's to, to go to and to eat. Overfed and unconcerned, you were wealthy, you had a lot of goods, but you didn't care about the poor. You didn't care about the needy. Think of the law of God. Think of his laws regarding um, the fields and harvest. Don't harvest the corners of the fields. If things fall out of the wagon, as if the grain and the grapes fall out of the wagons as you're harvesting, leave them. Why? Because people who are poor, people who are needy have an opportunity to come and to harvest for themselves and to pick for themselves and to provide for themselves. Think of the, the, the book of Ruth. Where Ruth and Naomi come back, they're, they're husbandless, they're fatherless, they're sonless, they're almost homeless. And Boaz tells Ruth, not only do you come and glean, not only do you come and harvest what my people leave behind, I'm going to tell them to leave behind extra for you. Oh, and by the way, here's about a week's worth of harvest that I'm going to give you right now. God's people are called to be concerned about the poor, to be concerned about the needy, to be concerned for those who do not have. God gives us stuff. God gives us money. God gives us homes so that we can bless other people, so that we can help other people. Um, you know, we're called to help ourselves. We're called to provide for our families. But in doing that, we have opportunities to help others. So he says you're proud. He says you're overfed and uncaring. And then he says, uh, you did detestable things before me. We've already touched a little bit on what those detestable things were before God. You know, those men came to the Lot's door and they said, um, open the door. Give us these men. Um, and our tendency there is to say, OK, detestable things are merely sexual sin. But it's important for us to see and to understand that before God, all sin is detestable. All sin is horrible. All sin is horrific. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? You think murder's bad. Have you ever been angry in your heart? Have you ever called somebody a name? Have you called them an idiot or a fool or even something worse? You're liable to judgment for those things. And the reality is, as we look at this list of sins, even as short as it is, it's not even like 10 sins long, like the Ten Commandments that we just finished looking at a couple weeks ago. In this short list of sins, we find ourselves. Each and every one of us finds ourselves listed in these sins because at root, each and every one of us is proud. Me and you included. 
We all sit here and say at some point in our lives, at some point today, at some point in the next few seconds, God, I know better how to run my life than you do. But there's hope as well. Jesus in his ministry was talking to the Jewish leaders as they were rejecting his message, as they were questioning his signs. He looks at them and he says, look, if the signs I have done for you here in this northern section of Israel had been done in Sodom, they'd still be here today because they would have repented of their sins. They would have turned and they would have understand the depths of their depravity, the depths of their need of a savior. He said, but you look at me and you ignore me. And so because of that, judgment comes upon you. And the, and the hope here is that Jesus meets us in our pride. And he says, I took that pride upon my shoulders and I died on the cross and I nailed that sin to the cross and took the punishment for you so that you might have life. So that God might look at you and not see a proud and haughty and unconcerned person who does detestable things. But see a righteous person who is loved and called a faithful servant of God. We have to be careful when we look at these sins, this list of sins here, that they're not living within our lives. Uh, I, went, I had an opportunity to go to a conference this week in Louisville, Kentucky, um, and the theme of the conference was how the gospel speaks to race. The overall theme was that we need to be distinct and different from the world, but it, it kind of looked at that underlying uh, thoughts of, of how the church has dealt with race, and the church in America has not done a good job over the years in dealing with race. There was a study done several years ago in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. It says, hey, doctrinally we did great. As a denomination, we, we condemned slavery in America. But we never denied the table to slaveholders. We never brought slaveholders up on charges of church discipline. You know, C.H. Spurgeon, in the very same time frame in England, if a slaveholder walked in his back door and came up to this table to partake of the Lord's Supper, he would stop him and say, no, you're in grievous sin. You are not allowed to the table. We didn't do that in our own denomination, but you know, that was 150 years ago. Ike, why are you bugging me with this? I want to do a thought experiment here with you right now. Just for a moment, I had to go through this this week. I'm going to put you through the pain as well. Right now in America, African Americans are twice as likely to be unemployed as Americans, as, as Caucasian Americans, excuse me. So think about that. Let that sit in and capture that first thought that comes into your mind. African Americans are twice as likely to be unemployed than Caucasians. Now capture that first thought, boom, right there. Statistically, everybody in the room, the first thought was, well, they should get off, up, off their lazy hineys and go get a job. Statistically, that's the first thought for everybody in this room. Do you see that? Do you understand that? Do you feel that? For those of you that are shaking your head, no, thank you very much. Statistically, however, the rest of you that are shaking your head, no, may be thinking... The system is stacked against them, therefore they have no chance. Do you see how that kind of demeans their humanity as well? 
Well, they can't do it on their own. The system's stacked against them. They have no help. So I'm not saying that to condemn. Man, that hurt when, when, when uh, David Platt said that. He said, what was the first thought that you came into your mind? And he was right. The truth, the, the truth is not really somewhere in the middle. The truth is a both and. Yes, Scripture commands us, if you don't work, you don't eat. But at the same time, we as the church are to speak out against those systems that are stacked against people that keep them from being able to get a job. Keep them from being able to take care of their family. Keep them from being able to take care of themselves. We have to change our thought process. And in doing that, we have to admit that there are problems with our thought processes. In doing that, we have to admit that we look at poor people differently. We think there's something less because they don't have what we have. We have to admit that, yes, there are problems in our system that are stacked against them. And we may not care. Why do I say we may not care? Because what do we do to fix those systems? What do we do to cry out against those systems? What do we do to help give people a leg up. I've been in a conversation with several pastors over the last few months and that maybe we need to redefine what it means to be successful in poverty alleviation. Maybe it's not just giving the handout day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Maybe it's crying out to our political leaders and saying, look, the system is broken, fix it. And then working within that system to teach people how to take care of themselves within that system, to advocate for them to help with their jobs, to advocate for them to get out of the horrible living conditions that they're living in. Advocate for them to help them take care of their family and come along beside them and teach them how to do it. If you're good at a job, if you're good at getting a job, if you're good at taking care of your family, find somebody who's not and teach them. Walk beside them. Be an advocate for them. Because the reality is we're going to celebrate here in just a moment the fact that we were poor before God. We stood before God with a system stacked against us, a system that we built because of our own sin, a system that said, God, we can do this better than you. And God said, no, you can't, and I'm going to show you how. I'm going, to, I, I, I'm going to redeem you from this system. I am going to take the punishment of your sin upon myself. And so as we go to these people and we teach and we train and we lift them up or we try to, we go with the gospel as well because we have that glorious message that, that God is against them, but there is relief from that as much as there is relief from poverty. This has been rough, I understand. It was rough in presentation style. It was rough in what you heard. I, I always love it when I get convicted of sin. I love sharing it with people anyway. But there's glory in it as well. There's glory in being broken. There's glory in being convicted. Because we can remember that when we're convicted, when God shines the light of his word in our heart, that he doesn't just do it with a boot. He does it with grace. And he does it with forgiveness. And brothers and sisters, we can repent of our sin. We can repent to the people that we've wronged. We can repent to God and God will say, I forgive you. And we can start in his power on the right path of working against oppression, of not being proud 
and of not being unconcerned about the people around us. God's given us a wonderful gift of the gospel. The gospel changes lives. And sometimes the gospel changes not just our spiritual lives, but our physical and our economic as well. Let's pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you that you have saved us from our poverty of sin and set us up to the riches of salvation. Help us to share that message and to care not just for people's souls, but for people's lives as well. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.